Good morning. Let's turn right to Psalm 145. I want to come right out of that song and read our psalm for the morning. Psalm 145. A psalm of David, a song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation will commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all his mercies over all that he's made. All your works shall give thanks to you, Lord. All your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words, and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling, and he raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works. The Lord's near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He hears their cry and he saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. In case you didn't notice, this psalm is about not keeping our mouths shut. <laughs> Did you pick, up, pick, pick that up? This song, psalm is about words, lots of words of praise to God. Um, question, anyone in here have, use a Fitbit? Anybody? Betsy just got one recently. Counts your steps every day and you try to set a goal and, and, and make that many steps in a day. Uh, I was imagining if they could make a Fitbit for the mouth, that could count every word that came out of it every day. I don't know, I, I wouldn't be very good at the Fitbit, but I would kill it at that Fitbit right there. I, I was the kid growing up who couldn't keep his mouth shut. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I mentioned that uh, most of my elementary school years were spent in a desk facing the opposite corner from all the other students. It was mainly because I couldn't keep my mouth shut. I just talked. If I thought it, I said it. Well, this psalm is about not keeping our mouths shut. 
But wait, go, let me go back. So Fitbit, imagine you had a Fitbit for your mouth and it could calculate all the words you spoke every day and then you could crunch all the data and, and put out a pie chart. And you could visualize what made up all those words. What were all those words about? I wonder what wedges would dominate the pie chart. The news, Netflix, food, in my case, would probably take a considerable wedge. If you're like me, me would probably take up a big wedge. Brian Regan, the me monster, I can be prone to talk a lot about myself. What sort of words would fill the pie chart? Complaining words? Um, Arguing? Self-promotion? Or just small talk? How big of a wedge would just be meaningless small talk? I wonder how big a wedge God would occupy in our daily word count. Because that's what this psalm is about, is that God is worthy of a lot of our words. A lot more than, than we give him. He's worthy of mouths that are filled with praise because his greatness is unsearchable. That's what this psalm is about. Two points I want to unpack this morning. Number one is God's greatly to be praised. He deserves a lot of praise. And secondly, it's because his greatness is unsearchable. He deserves praise equal to his greatness, and his greatness is unsearchable. So that means he's worthy of infinite praise. Let me pray. I want to ask God to help us get this this morning and, and see his greatness. Lord, you are great. And it's displayed all around us every day in huge, glorious things like the night sky and clouds sailing along and, and mountains and oceans. And, and it's obvious in, in simple daily things like oxygen that we are breathing in right now that sustains our life. Um, we can see your greatness through history, particularly the history of the scriptures as you've revealed yourself in clear, powerful, glorious ways. God, I pray this morning you would help us to see it. God, some here this morning walked in these doors. They were ready to sing and praise you. Um, your greatness was uh, obvious to them. Others of us this morning uh, might be slow in that department. God, I pray that you would you'd show us your greatness here again uh, in such a way that it, we couldn't help but uh, talk about you and tell you and lift up the praise that you're due. We ask your help in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, so number one, God is worthy to be praised. He's greatly to be praised. He deserves lots of our words. In fact, at the end of this psalm, verse, or near the end, verse 20, there's this little dark shadow at the end after all these verses about um, the praise that he's due and blessing his name and loving him and adoring him. Th there's this verse, the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy to refuse to give God the glory he's due, to refuse or even neglect or ignore the God who is worthy of all praise and whose greatness is unsearchable is blameworthy. He deserves our praise. He's worthy of it. And the psalm underscores this in a number of ways. It says he's worthy of all sorts of praise. If you just underline all the synonyms for praise him with your mouth, I think there's about 12 of them in here. He says right out of the gate, extol him. 
That means exalt his name, praise him enthusiastically. Three times the word bless, bless his name, bless him. That means declare the goodness of him and declare the goodness of his name. Three times praise him, praise him, praise him. Commend him in verse four. Commend him is praise him to others, right? When you commend something, you tell someone else about the greatness of a thing. So we're to commend God. We're going to tell others, impress upon others how great God is. Twice we're, we're to declare, declare his mighty acts, declare his greatness. That means speak confidently. Speak three times of his might, of his glorious kingdom. Speak his praise. I love verse 7, pour forth the fame. That means just go on and on about God's greatness. Like my son Levi can do on any number of topics if you're around him. Mylar balloons, drone helicopters, uh, radio towers. Uh, what else, Beth? Cranes, that's right. Go on. He can just go on and on about. It. We're to pour forth the fame of God. Go on and on about his greatness. Sing aloud. So let's get notes involved. Let's get uh, music involved and melody and harmony and, le- and let's praise him with beautiful sounding music. Psalm 150 says, and make it loud. Crashing cymbals and drums and trumpets. He's worthy of loud singing. We're to give him thanks. We're to tell of his power. We're to make known his mighty deeds. I, thought, I think I caught them all. Are we getting the point? God's worthy of all sorts of praise. He's worthy of us telling him how great he is. He's worthy of us telling other people how great he is. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing is what Charles Wesley wrote. Joe Henderson pointed out after first service that he stole that from some Moravian guy who said that in in passing. He said, that's a good one. I'm going to write that line into a hymn. But this sort of absurd image of a thousand tongues, just one tongue in my mouth, isn't enough to give for me to express all the praise that God is due. And do you notice all the, the word all throughout this psalm? All, 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 all. He's worthy of a lot of praisers. A lot of people. In fact, the last verse of the psalm says, here's the goal, let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. He's worthy of all people praising him. We're going to commission the days tonight. 11 days they're heading, 11 days they're heading out to the Philippines and right now uh, their, their worldly goods are in boxes on a cargo ship somewhere in the ocean, right? Including their son Luke's little toy, Zippy. Is that right? Yippy. What is Yippy, by the way? Little blow-up donkey named, named Yippy, right? And Luke had to pack that away in a box. He keeps asking about Yippy, and they keep saying, no, Yippy's on a ship headed to the Philippines. You're going to see him. He's going to be waiting for you when they get there. But why are they doing this? It's because they get this, that God is worthy of the praise of all peoples, right? They get to teach at a a place that is so uh, strategically positioned in the Philippines to teach the word of God and train up pastors and shepherds who are going to go take that word to all these countries that have uh, limited access and places where the name of Jesus isn't even known. God's worthy of praise in Bhutan and Nepal. Some of you don't even know what Bhut- that Bhutan is a country. <laughs> Up in the mountains of the Himalayas and in Malaysia and Thailand and Vietnam 
and Indonesia and India and Pakistan. That's why they're going where they're going. Because God's worthy of worship in all those places. And he's worthy of frequent praise. Look at verse 2. Every day, David says, I will bless you. He's worthy of our praise every day. And every day going on forever and ever. The first and the last verse of of this psalm, Pilate, forever and ever. You're worthy of me praising you every day, forever and ever. You're worthy of all people praising you every day, forever and ever. He's greatly to be praised. Did you know that that idea was actually a hang-up for C.S. Lewis when he first became a Christian? C.S. Lewis was, if you don't know him, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and many other things. He was a professor in Oxford and an agnostic, and and God saved him. And when he was a a young Christian and, and reading his Bible, this idea that God commands his praise and the Psalms are constantly calling everybody to praise him, actually was a hang-up for him because it didn't seem fitting of God. He was sort of embarrassed of it. Here's what he means in a little book called Reflections on the Psalms. He, he says it. He says, you know, we all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. And we despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who gratify that demand. That's true, right? Yeah, it's distasteful. It's, it's gross. If people are constantly fishing for compliments and, 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 and urging people to praise them and then people fawning over that, so that's just ugly. And so as he read the Psalms, it hit his ears like this. It sounded to him like what God was saying is what I want most is to be told that I'm good and great like a vain woman wanting compliments or a vain author presenting his new books to people who've never heard of him or met him. Sort of embarrassed him. Why is is God having to tell everyone to praise him? Maybe you've had a similar thought. It's weird. If I was to do that, you wouldn't want to be around me. I don't know about about you, this is just probably the sinfulness of my heart, but when someone's fishing for a compliment and it's obvious to me, I don't want to give it, (laughs) even if it's true. So why is it okay for God to be like this, to demand his praise and for us to urge all people to praise him? Well, the lights came on for Lewis with this realization, thinking about, well, if something truly is admirable or worthy of praise, then admiration is the correct, adequate, appropriate response to it. And he said on the flip side, for something, especially God, if he is most worthy to be praised, then actually to neglect or refuse him praise, that means that we are stupid, insensible, great losers who shall have missed something. If God is truly worthy to be praised, then to praise him is actually good for us. He said, It's in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to men. In other words, I think what he means by that is when God says, uh, calls for praise, it's a taste and see that I'm good sort of command. It's not just give me words, but see my greatness. Know my glory. Enjoy who I am and what I've done. And then do what we all do when we enjoy something a lot. We say we enjoy it. We express it, right? We do that all the time. 
Lewis pointed out, we do it about food, we do it about wines and travel destinations and beautiful music and pieces of art. We enjoy something, a, a, an amazing view like Yosemite Valley. Why is it that we seem to not be able to enjoy things silently? When you really enjoy something, doggone it, you want to say something, right? You ever been somewhere amazing or experiencing something amazing all by yourself or you didn't know anyone around and there was no one to turn to and say, look at that. And it, does, it feels like something's sort of missing. Eric Tonis has been one of those examples in, in our family. In fact, we were uh, of someone who's just constantly seeing the glory of God and calling others uh, to express it too. And we were driving last summer, uh, two summers ago, into Zion National Park with our kids uh, to go hike through the Narrows. And as we're entering, if you've ever been to Zion, it just all of a sudden comes upon you like this just amphitheater of glorious, you know, amazing rock walls and stuff. And as we were driving in and the sun was coming up, I, I said to the kids in the back, hey, who am I right now? Guys, guys. Look at this. Guys, look at this. And they said, Uncle Eric. They knew immediately, (laughs) Uncle Eric, right? Why do we do this? Why do we struggle to really enjoy something with our mouth shut? Lewis would say that last line there, because praise completes the enjoyment. Praise is, it's a pointed consummation. It's like the icing on the cake. When we really, truly enjoy something, expressing our enjoyment is part of the joy that we experience. Have you, have you experienced that? Even this morning as you were praising and, and singing and lifting your voice to God, the expressing it coming out of your mouth, was that part of the, your enjoyment of God? Sometimes praise works that way. Sometimes it starts in the heart. And we see, we, we think of, we're meditating on like David was, the glorious splendor of God's majesty. And, and sometimes praise is like uh, releasing the pressure of a joyful heart or a worshipful heart. Like if you push that little button in the valve of a full tire and it goes, there's this pressure that's built up and praise is the expression of it. It's letting some of that joy out. I think this psalm is one of those sorts of praises, right? Right out of the gate, David seems to be feeling it, doesn't he? Right out of the gate. I will extol you. I'll bless your name. Every day I'll praise you. I mean, he's feeling it. And this whole psalm is just like a burst of praise. But in my experience, praise doesn't always work in that order. My heart is just full and then I praise him. Often it actually works in the reverse order. Sometimes our praise is like filling the vacuum of a cold heart or a downcast heart, or a fearful heart, or a bitter heart, or a numb heart. Sometimes it starts with opening my mouth with praise. Jackson preached from Psalm 16 last week. Psalm 16, I think, is one of those sorts of psalms where it works in that order. Verse 1, David's not feeling it. First words out of his mouth are, preserve me. I need refuge, God. Doesn't say why, but he feels vulnerable, he's afraid, and he needs help. So what does he do? He praises. Verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Last week as Jackson was reading that, (laughs) the question that I wrote down on my notes were, who is he trying to convince here? 
He says to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. God doesn't need any convincing of that. He doesn't need David to tell him that. David needs to say those things, doesn't he? He needs to be convinced of it. And so that's where he begins. He begins with praise when he's not feeling it. And then he begins to rehearse the evidence he has seen and knows and has even heard from the the experience of others who've tasted and seen. And as he recounts the evidence in praise, by the end of the psalm, he's beginning to feel it. By the end of the psalm, he's able to say, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. So sometimes praise is born out of a full heart Often praise is is the means by which we grow in our enjoyment of God. And he fills our heart with worship for him. Sometimes praise is revived by hearing the praise of others when we can't muster it ourselves. Which is another reason why opening our mouths to praise him is so important because other people need to hear it. Notice how this plays out in verses four through nine, this this corporate, this community aspect of praise, praising God together, a give and take. Verse four, David says, one generation will commend your works to another and will declare your mighty acts. And then here's what David does. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They will pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And then David says, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he's made. He adds his agreement to what he's hearing. I think the generations he has in mind here, one generation commending works to another— were the generations of Israel that had gone before David and had handed down the the Pentateuch, these, these books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the greatest hits of God's greatness. These amazing stories that they would retell again and again where God clearly showed his greatness in mighty deeds and acts. And so here's what's happening for David. His praise in part of God is being fueled by the praises of others who've gone before, who've testified to the greatness of God. Stories that he knew, like stories of God making amazing promises to a nobody named Abraham who wasn't a worshiper of him, comes to Abraham, makes promises, I will bless you. And I will bless you even when you you fail, despite your sin, I am just gonna bless you. And then being faithful to, to bless his son Isaac and then his son Jacob and Joseph all the way down even to David who was in this line. David could look back on stories of God's mighty deliverance. Israel was slaves in Egypt and God sends Moses as his mouthpiece and a rescuer, and he pours out plagues on Egypt until Pharaoh finally says, go. And he parts the Red Sea and he leads them out with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. David could look back on the testimony of, of the former generations who said, when we entered the land, God took over. He just opened the doors and let us in. The walls of Jericho story, all we did is march around the city and God made all the walls crumble down and he gave it to us. He could look back on uh, stories of God's provision, daily manna, water from rocks, 
It says at one point at the end, as they come into the land, that God made it so that their clothes didn't wear out over decades of wandering in the wilderness. And David, as he's listening to the voices of generations who are commending the greatness of God to him, he's caught up in it. And as he meditates on it, he declares and agrees God is gracious and merciful, and he is slow to anger, and his mercy is over all that he's made. He, He gets swept up into it. That's the way it works. Hearing the praises of others can actually multiply my views of God's greatness. And not just the praises of of generations past, but every Sunday when we come together in this way, in this room, and you get up and you get in your car and you get here on time so we can all stand up and sing the same words together out loud, this is happening A couple of weeks ago, Betsy and I got to go to the U2 concert at the Rose Bowl. A 16-year-old me was so happy. Oh, man, Joshua Tree, 30th anniversary. Rose Bowl, 75,000 people at this concert on Saturday night. I don't think I've ever been to an event that, that big that I could remember. Um, and as the concert started, the sun goes down, the opening act was done, and... Uh, and we were sitting far enough up that they looked like these little ants that walked out onto the stage. And, but as the first song began, other than everyone getting to their feet and, and cheering, you know what else happened? Smartphones. 75,000 smartphones around the whole uh, stadium we could see all out capturing this momentous occasion, the glory of uh, where the streets have no name from, from where they're sitting, right? And uploading it to Instagram and Facebook. And we got home later that night. I had posted pictures, I, I, I admit. Um, uh, but all these other people posting, some people I knew who were at the concert posting their videos all from where they're sitting. Some people had better seats than I did. Some people had worse seats than I did. Some people could see from a different angle. But here's where I'm going with this. Congregational worship is sort of like this. We come together, we're singing the same songs, the same words, the same notes, most of you. (laughs) 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 To the same God. But you know what's not the same? Is all of your stories and what's in your mind and the examples of ways that you have seen the greatness of God that's fueling the words coming out of your mouth. So in one sense, we all sang the same four songs this morning, but in another sense, every, each one of you was singing a unique song of praise to the greatness of God, just using the same words. It looks a little different from where each of you is sitting. We need, that's one of the reasons we need to gather like this. And it helps when we know one another's stories. Eugene Peterson, uh, who wrote the the message, that paraphrase of of the Bible, and he wrote a little book called Answering God about the Psalms. And as he's talking about the Psalms, and he says this, he says, all prayer is prayed in a story by someone who's in the story. There are no storyless prayers. There's no storyless praises either. Knowing the the stories of other praisers in the room is what helps us see God's greatness bigger than we can just see it from our our, our vantage point, our seat. And we need this especially when we're struggling to see God's greatness from where we're currently sitting, right? We remind one another, yes, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And the reason he's greatly to be praised, number two here, is 
because his greatness is unsearchable. God is the only one who can't be praised too highly. Nothing else, no one else can you say that about. Everything else uh, has the potential to not live up to the hype. Have you ever experienced something that just flat, it just didn't live up to all the, the praises that people were singing about it? A movie, a travel destination, or a restaurant, or something, and you, people just talked it up, talked it up, and, you, and it might even be really good, but you're like, it was good, but I mean, it wasn't that good. That's never true of God. His greatness is unsearchable. As great as you think he is, he's greater than that. All the praise that's ever been given and all the praise that will ever be given from every mouth, every word taken all together still comes up short. That's what that psalm, song that Jeffrey led us in just before this time was. Not enough pens, not enough words, not enough um, poets. It's unsearchable. And two aspects of God's greatness that this psalm focuses on in particular are this. Number one, God's a great king. And second, his kingdom is great. The opening verses of the psalm, David has the king in mind and, and, and he's blessing the name of his king. David, who is king of Israel, is writing this song of praise to his God and king and blessing him. And it sort of ping-pongs back and forth between the character of the king, he's mighty, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, to his wondrous works, his, his mighty deeds, his acts. And, and it goes back and forth because the greatness of the king is seen in what he does and how he acts, and how he has acted. And so, God, David says some things about the greatness of his king. He says, my God and king is mighty, verse 4. And the reason is, he had seen the might of God. In the past, he had seen it in plagues on Egypt, and the, and the uh, Red Sea parting, and Jericho walls falling down. But David had also seen the, the mighty hand of God, hadn't he? God had made David, the shepherd boy, a king. He allowed him to kill Goliath, who nobody wanted to fight. He'd seen God's mighty hand be displayed on behalf of his people, defending his honor and vindicating his glory. He'd seen uh, it for battle after battle as, as they fought the Philistines and God gave Israel victory under his leadership. He could testify to the might of his God. In battles where they were way outnumbered and God still gave victory. Verse 7, he says his God and king is abundantly good. And he saw this looking back in manna and water and provision, but he'd seen it in his own life too. Under David's uh, throne, there was a time of flourishing for Israel where they prospered under his good, godly leadership. And, and God blessed the nation of Israel and he'd seen God provide. In, in amazing ways. Verses 8 and 9, he says his God and king is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger sort of king. He's an abounding and steadfast love sort of king. And he had reasons for this. He could look back in history and see God's patience with Israel through the wilderness, his mercy and his grace at forgiving and giving second chances after they make a golden calf. And after they complain about 
his lack of provision, days after being provided for. But David could see all this in his own life too. David could see how merciful and gracious his king was as he dealt with him for murder and adultery and his own sin. Here's the thing. As great as David knew his God and king to be, you and I have better seats. When David wrote this, he, he didn't know the half of it. We can see Jesus from our seats. David can see, sorry, just to be clear, David can also see Jesus from his seat right now. So technically, I think right now, David does have a better seat than us. But I mean, from Psalm 145 vantage point, we look back now and we actually, we've seen Jesus. When the Bible says that our king is mighty, we don't just look back on the Exodus. We don't just look back under, uh, to, to Israel under David's reign. We look back to a moment when the almighty God humbled himself, condescended, and became a baby and grew and then performed miracles and signs and wonders that left people scratching their heads, casting out demons with a word, raising the dead, healing diseases, stopping storms with a word from his mouth. We know how good, abundantly good our king is. We can look at Jesus walking among the poorest of the poor and welcoming children, the God of the universe welcoming the children to come and sit on his lap and feeding the hungry, not turning them away to go find their own food and and teaching them and calling the lost sheep of Israel back to their God. We see the abundant goodness in the king of kings, Jesus. We understand the gracious and merciful qualities of our king as we look at Jesus and we hear him come and say, I didn't come to, to, to save my life. I came to give it as a ransom for many. To give it as a ransom to pay for the sins of the very ones who would nail him to a cross. We see the, the grace in the face of Jesus as he he, he ha, uh, restores Peter who denied him and forgives him and says, okay, feed my sheep. We see the slowness to anger of our king in that God sends Jesus the first time not as judge, but as ransom and sacrifice and the lamb of God to take our way our sin. Jesus is a great king. We see the greatness of our king the most clearly uh, in his face and what he came and did and what he promises to come and do again. Which means that not only is he a great king, but his kingdom is great. Which is just another way of saying that he's a great king. But it's saying it from our perspective. Not only sort of objectively is God a great king, but to say that his kingdom is great is to say, I love being part of his kingdom. I love having God as king, which is where verses 13 through the rest of the psalm go. Notice real quick here, verse 5, the glorious splendor of his majesty David's meditating on. And then verse 12, the glorious splendor of your kingdom. And then he begins to recount some specific ways that he's saying, it is good to have God as my king. 
And here's what I want to do, actually, as we wrap up the service. I thought it would be appropriate when we're in a psalm that's calling us to, to speak of the greatness of God from where we're sitting, that we would do that a little bit before we're done. And here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to grab a mic in a second. I want to read 13 through 20. And as I read these, I imagine that for many of you, most of you, personal details will come to your mind. Examples of how you have seen God's greatness as king in your life in these ways um, and details. And we're going to take a few minutes. I'm going to run around like a crazy person with a mic and try to hear from some of you. Uh, And we're going to then wrap this up by standing and singing loudly to God. So let me read the second half of verse 13. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. In other words, our king's word can be trusted. And time and time again, he proves to us in our experience that we can trust his words. How have you seen that? Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling. He raises up all who are bowed down. Our king bears us up and strengthens us when we don't have strength. Verse 15, the eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Our king knows what we need and he gives us what we need in his timing, in his way, according to his wisdom. And he's even gracious enough to give us the good desires of our heart. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him. When we cry out to him in desperate prayer, he shows up and he answers. How have you seen this? Just take 30 seconds here to, to think. Look back over those verses. Does one of them jump out to you? That you, you have a word, a sentence or two you want to say, I've seen the greatness of my king in this way. Let me tell you. 